in the month of October 2017, which is the 500th anniversary of October 1517. And we don't tend to make a big deal out of dates in church history, but 1517 is absolutely massive. On the 31st of October 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther strode across the courtyard to the door of Wittenberg Church and put on that door, nailed to it, a set of 95 statements, 95 theses. It's like 95 tweets. He was was saying, I want to discuss these points. And those 95 points were points that he was making about the sale of indulgences. And so at that time, the, uh, the church was the Catholic church. The church was selling indulgences. There was a lot of abuse going on with that system. Basically, people were paying for a shortcut to avoid uh, kind of the penalty for their sin. But by paying cash, they could bypass the whole process. And Martin Luther was upset about this. And he nailed that set of theses to the door, wanting to spark a conversation. But instead, what happened was those theses got taken down, they got translated from Latin into German, and then they got copied and they got dispersed all across the land. And it just went absolutely viral. Suddenly, the German people were rising up. There was an uproar, a revolution starting, because people were saying, we don't like the way the church is treating us. And over the course of the next few years, as Martin Luther continued to study the Bible, continued to teach it, and continued to defend himself, he became clearer and clearer that actually what the Bible is teaching is very different than what the church is teaching at that time. That what the Bible reveals to us is a God who is radically different from the God that the church presents. And so what he discovered, it wasn't that he made it up, he discovered the truth of the gospel that was here the whole time in the Bible, but it was kept distant from the people. And so we're celebrating that because not we're excited about German monks, we're celebrating it because we're excited about the gospel. And so for this month, it's like we're celebrating the good news of who God is and what God has done for us. So if you've got a Bible, grab hold of it. You don't need to open it yet. Just, just hold it or see one if you can see one from where you are. This book is an absolute treasure. What we're holding in our hands is something that is so incredibly valuable. And it's hard for us to feel that, isn't it? When you can get it on your phone and you can get it for one pound from uh, Amazon or CBD or what's the one over here, 10 of those. It just, you know, you can buy them cheaply all over the place. And if you've been in the church for a while, you've probably got a pile of them at home. And we can easily treat this as if it's just another book when actually this is an absolute treasure for us, the word of God. And I want to give you a quote as we start here. Uh, There's a picture of a few reformers. I won't do a, a spot the reformer. Uh, moment here, but let's get past this. Martin Luther said this, let them destroy my works. I deserve nothing better for all my wish has been to lead souls to the Bible so that they might afterwards neglect my writings. Great God, if we had a knowledge of scripture, what need would there be of any books of mine? That was his passion. He wanted people to have the Bible, to know the Bible, to understand the Bible. Okay, so that is a very, very significant quote. Bear in mind, he uh, published or had printed something like 3,700 documents in his lifetime. He was Mr. Popular. Okay, so to say all of that, 
I'd gladly have it all burned if only people would know this. Now, what was the situation at the time? At the time, the Bible was not known. It wasn't available. It was uh, really the only Bible that was out there was the Latin version, which was a thousand years old. And the only people that could read it were the priests. And most of them couldn't do a very good job. And so the Bible was completely out of reach. But for Luther, uh, a central passion of, of his life was to get the Bible to people. Let me just give you another quote. I'll, I'll try not to overquote Luther, but it's hard because I like him. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, that's the kind of Pope fans, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing, the word did everything. That's a great quote, isn't it? I did nothing. We're celebrating what happened 500 years ago, but if Luther was speaking, he would, he would say, don't focus on me at all. I did nothing, the word did everything. In the paragraph around that, he talks about the fact that he would rest and relax and hang out with friends, and all the time, the Word of God was softening and preparing the people, uh, preparing the leadership, changing the nation, the Word of God just working, working, working. Uh, Next picture here, this is a, a place called Wartburg Castle. After Luther was called to give an account for what he was teaching, actually he wasn't called to give an account, he was called to recant it, and uh, he didn't. And uh, after that, uh, some friends of his kind of kidnapped him. It's a good thing they did, otherwise he would have been killed. But he was kidnapped and he was taken to this place, Wartburg Castle. And in this castle, he stayed undercover, secretly hidden away. He grew a beard. He changed his name. He would go out and sort of visit people as Knight George, uh, because if he went out as Martin Luther, he didn't really know what would happen. He'd probably get killed. So it was very dangerous. But while he was there, he set about his greatest passion, which was to take the Bible and to translate it into German. Not using the Latin translation that had all sorts of issues, but using the newly available Greek New Testament that literally had just come out a couple of years before. And in 11 weeks, he translated the New Testament into German. That's pretty impressive. Over the next 10, 12 years, uh, with the help of friends, he gradually got the Old Testament completed so that then we had the German Bible. It's no use to us because we don't read German. It's missing. Where happened to my German Bible? It doesn't matter if it's not there. But the German Bible, a Bible in the language of the people, that was an astonishing thing. Uh, There it is. Uh, That looks English to me. Yeah, go back. Let's go back to the other chat because as as much as we love the Germans having a Bible, there's a German Bible. That's uh, the Luther Bible. Uh, The original one didn't have his name on it. He just said it was done in Wittenberg. Anyone recognize this chap? As much as we're glad for the Germans to have a Bible, we need one in English. William Tyndale. William Tyndale is living about the same time. In the 1520s, as Luther was translating the Bible into German, Tyndale's passion was to translate the Bible into English. He lived not far from here, near Bath. We've got a picture of the place, Little Sodbury Manor. Uh, He was there for about seven years. And while he was there, he was really disturbed 
by the lack of understanding amongst the priests. He had a conversation with a priest, and in the course of the conversation, the priest said, I would rather lose the word of God than lose the traditions of the church. That really annoyed him. And so he came out with a very famous quote uh, that you can see here. He said, if God spares my life before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plow to know more scripture than you do. There's a threat. And so he set about translating the Bible into English. Couldn't get permission to do it in England, so he ended up living uh, overseas. In fact, he went to Wittenberg, spent time with Luther, mixed their ideas together, had a lot of little chit-chats and probably some beer knowing Luther, and they spent some time together there, and then he spent some time elsewhere in Germany, ended up in the Belgium, kind of Holland, low countries kind of area, and, and while he was there, he was translating the Bible into English. He was an incredibly effective communicator. In fact, his English Bible, the, the wording is 90% of what 100 years later went into the King James authorized version. He really is, if you like, the father of modern English, just like Luther is given credit for being the father of modern German. Tyndale was an astonishing man, but he was doing it on the run. All the time, the church was trying to stop him. In fact, there was one guy who helpfully bought an entire print run of uh, English Bibles in order to burn them. And in doing so, funded all of Tyndale's debts and enabled him to do a bigger print run, which then got spread out across the UK. It would be brought in in barrels and in, in uh, what do you call it, cloth that was kind of for sale. And the merchants would distribute these little, literally pocket-sized Bibles by Tyndale. And then he befriended somebody or somebody befriended him who had been paid to go and betray him. He was betrayed, he was arrested, and then he was uh, held in Leuven in Belgium. Eventually he was brought out uh, before the amassed dignitaries and he was tied to a stake. I think we've got a picture, thankfully not a photo. And uh, he was... uh, graciously strangled before having his body burned. But the last words were these. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Doesn't that make you feel the value of what you're holding in your hands? To to think of what it cost people to, to do the crazy, dangerous work of translating the Bible into our language. He prayed those words, died, was burned within a year. His prayer was beginning to be answered. Within three years, a Bible was distributed to every parish in England. It was the Coverdale Bible, but it was mostly Tyndale stuff. And so within three years of his death, the English Bible was accessible in every part of the country. If we had time, we could talk about how the Bible got into Spanish and how the Bible got into French, all at the same uh, kind of era of history. Why? Because the Reformation was, if, if anything, we think Reformation, yet the recovery of the gospel. But really, what the lasting benefit has been is not just clarity on the gospel, it's access to the gospel, access to the word of God. And that's what we're celebrating. That's why every week we take our Bibles and we look at a passage and we talk about it and and we hopefully do that at home and feed ourselves from it because this is an absolute treasure. Not just because it's a dangerous book to translate 500 years ago. Not just because it contains wonderful history and great insight, but because this is the very word of God. 
when the Bible speaks, God speaks. If you want to hear what God thinks, you read the Bible. If you want to know what God values, you read the Bible. If you want to know what God's like, you read the Bible. And we have free access to it. What an incredible privilege. Let's have one more quote before we open our Bibles and and look at something. Luther said, Therefore, he who would correctly and profitably read Scripture should see to it that he finds Christ in it. Then he finds life eternal without fail. What he's saying there is this. Don't just look at it like an instruction manual. Some people like to say the Bible stands for basic instructions before, before leaving earth. And I'd love to just expunge that concept because it's so far short of what the Bible actually is. This is not just basic instruction or owner's manual. This is how we can know God. And as we open our Bibles and we look for Christ, we discover the one who reveals God to us. And I want us to do that this afternoon. I want us to turn to a passage that is going to give us an example of the kind of transformation that Luther experienced. This is a passage that uh, I'm sure was significant for him. I wasn't able to find proof of that, but I'll tell you, it's been significant for me in terms of my view of God being shifted by looking at the Bible more closely. Let's turn to the book of Exodus. It's the second book. If you've got a church Bible, I'm on page 73. Page 73, page numbers at the top, in the middle there. Book of Exodus. So let me just give a little bit of background. This is a passage that, uh, that I want us to, to kind of taste and get a, a feel for. Some of you may have seen this before. We probably presented this a few years ago. But it's so, so important, so valuable. Thinking about, okay, who is God? What is he like? And is there any way that we can know him? That's really what we're, we're asking as we come to this. Book of Exodus, chapter 33, it's on page 73. And here's a bit of background. This is, oh, where are we, 1,500, 1,800 years before, uh, 1,400 years before the time of Christ. So we're going back 3,500 years. What had happened at this, uh, lead up to this, is that the nation of Israel had grown up and it ended up as slaves in Egypt, They'd been slaves there for a few centuries. God delivered them. They came out of Egypt, and he was in the process of leading them back to the promised land. Okay, so this is kind of a very long journey. It shouldn't have been long, but that's another story. So they're on this journey back to the promised land. And honestly, when you read it, you kind of think, if I was God, I would get rid of them. They're a train wreck. I mean, they're an absolute pain. They're moaning and complaining and grumbling and doubting and saying, we're going to go back to Egypt. We miss the cucumbers, which I don't understand because cucumbers are gross. But, but they obviously were good in Egypt and, and they were just moaning and complaining. And, and then they did something that's absolutely shocking. They made a golden calf and they fell down and worshipped this calf and they called the calf their God and they, they committed all sorts of immoral things in front of this calf. It was like a, a hideous drunken party. And from God's perspective, that was his wife, the people that he had redeemed for himself on the honeymoon going off with another lover. Absolutely shocking. 
And so God is up on the mountain and Moses is up on the mountain talking with God and God tells Moses what's going on and God tells Moses how mad he is and Moses knows how mad he is and they have a discussion. That's the background. And the discussion basically is this. Moses saying, God, you, you, you can't just destroy them all because what are people going to say about you? you? Just, you know, destroy me instead or do, let's, let's not kill them all, Lord. Your reputation, Lord. And and God's, okay, I, I won't destroy them. Okay, uh, Lord, but you need to go with us. As we go to the promised land, it's no good letting us go without you. We, we need you to go with us. And God's saying, oh, I don't, don't think I want to go with you. you know? And there's this back and forth, and it's pretty tense. And in the end, God says, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses seems to push it a little bit too far. Chapter 33, verse 18. Actually, that's page 74, isn't it? Well, we're making progress. Verse 18 Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, let's just pause before we keep reading there. Moses obviously is dense, right, at this moment. To say that, that's the silliest thing to say. He's on the mountain in the presence of a very, very angry God who is a jilted husband. Right? That's, that's literally the language that's being used here. And, and God is really angry, and Moses says to him, <clears throat> P.S., Lord, one more thing. Can you show me your glory? Every time I get to that point in the Bible, I go, Moses, wrong question. You should say, it's been great talking. Thank you so much. Can you now please show me the exit? That's the, the right thing to ask. You're with an angry, the angry God. Right? Show me the exit. I need to get away because you are frightening. That would be completely understandable. But instead, he says, show me your glory. I, I was raised going to church. I heard the Bible my whole life. Just hearing that question almost sends a shiver down my spine. Like, Why would you be so crazy? Don't you know that if God's going to show his glory, it's going to be powerful, it's going to be impressive, there's going to be lightning, there's going to be noise, there's going to be just like mountains melting. It's going to be this overwhelming power display. And Moses is right there going, I'd love to see it. It seems like an absolutely bizarre thing to ask. Let's see what happens. So that's verse 18. Verse 19. God said, I will. Now, Moses should be scared, right? Because God's glory, power, brightness, impressive. No, God says, I will make, what does it say there? All my goodness pass before you. That was a shock to me. When I read that a few years ago, I was like, who put that in my Bible? Because I, I, I thought I knew it. I'd heard it so many times, but, but I'd never noticed that it said that. I will make all my goodness Pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, don't think this is some kind of soft niceness because you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See, there's a strength to this God, isn't there? To just to see his face would be the end. And he says, I'm not going to do that to you, but I'll let you see my goodness 
and my mercy and my kindness and my faithfulness. I mean, what an incredible list of words he gives there. It's almost like God isn't what we expect him to be, right? We expect God to be powerful and angry and ready to smite and dismiss and judge and crush. We expect God to have kind of big fists and and, and sort of anchor tattoos on his arms or something. We expect God to be intimidating. And, And Moses here says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll make my goodness pass before you. What kind of a God is this? And how did Moses know that it was safe to ask that question? As you go on into chapter 34, they have to recut the two tablets with the Ten Commandments because the first set had been destroyed uh, because of the sin and uh, the anger response to that. Drop down, uh, where are we? Uh, Verse 5. This is where the encounter happens. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Excuse me, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you love to see that? If there was a, a DVD library accessible from earth in heaven, the heavenly one, and you could sort of do a mail order or like a download, I, I'd want to download this one, wouldn't you? Lord, I want big screen surround sound because now I know it's safe. I want to know what it was like to be where Moses was, face covered so he couldn't see the Lord from the front, but to see the trail of the Lord's goodness passing before him. And this declaration, faithfulness and steadfast love and kindness and mercy. This isn't a soft God. He does deal with sin. He says that. He does deal with iniquity to the third and fourth generation, but this is a God who is overwhelmingly gracious very different from the God that most of us imagine is up there, isn't it? Very different from the God that Luther believed was up there. That's the thing. When you get the Bible in your own language and you start looking closely, you start to discover that God is not just this terrifying being that wants to destroy you, that actually he's this God, a God who's gracious and merciful and kind and forgiving. Now, that, that leaves me with a question. How did Moses know? Like, why didn't he say, please show me the exit? Why did he say, please show me your glory? Because it turned out really well. But was this just some kind of crazy gamble? Like, was he taking the biggest risk in the history of humanity? Or did he have a clue that actually this is what God is like? Go back to chapter 33, page 73, just a few verses earlier. And there's this intriguing paragraph verse 7 this is almost like a sort of uh, bracketed section in the midst of the conversation between God and Moses up on Mount Sinai it gives us a description of what would happen regularly what was Moses's habit never know how to say Moses is 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 habit okay so verse 7 now Moses used to take the tent 
and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Look at verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I think that's why Moses had confidence up on the mountain to say, show me your glory, Lord. Why? Because in that tent, he would regularly meet with the Lord face to face, talking with him as a man speaks to his friend. He knew what the Lord was like, but there's still a problem, isn't there? Verse 11 Moses would speak with the Lord face to face. Verse 20, no man can see my face and live. That's a contradiction right there. Let's throw our Bibles out, burn them, give up. Or ask the question, what's going on here? Some people will say it's just bad editing and you know, you've got different things put together and oops, God got a bit of a black eye there, didn't he? You know? I don't think so. In fact, I know not. When you look at this, even in the original language, the level of crafting and sequencing is so meticulous. There's no way that this is just bad editing. And so what's going on? How is it possible that in the same passage, Moses is on the mountain talking with the Lord, and the Lord says, you cannot see my face. But Moses says, show me your glory. But down uh, in a tent near the camp, Moses would meet with the Lord face to face, and they would talk. They would chat together. How is it possible that you cannot see my face face to face? You cannot see my face face to face. What's going on? Could it be that the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, is both unseen, up high, separated from everybody, and meeting face to face with Moses in a tent down by the people? Is it possible that that there's the Lord in the tent who reveals the Lord on the mountain? Is that even a concept? As you're reading through the Bible, that God is somehow perhaps both, and what language would we use for that? Now we'd say father, son, right? Maybe that's what's going on here. Let's turn to John chapter 1, just to show that that is exactly what is going on. This is New Testament, uh, where are we? Page 886. We fast forward 1,500 years. Jesus arrives. Gospel of John gets written. And I want us to just read one paragraph and see if you notice anything that hints Uh, that he's thinking about what we just read in Exodus. John 1, verse 14. He's talking about the word, which is a reference to Jesus. Okay, he's labeled for Jesus. He's the word of God, the one who speaks the, the heart and the thoughts of God to us, the revelation of God the Father. Verse 14, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pause there. Literally what it says here, if we were to read it in the Greek like Luther and Tyndale and people like that, we go, oh, that's interesting. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Pitched his tent among us. He lived among us where we are down here. He, he kind of came to where we're at. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of, if this was Old Testament, it would say full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Same words, same concept. Already in that one verse, we've already got at least three references back to the Exodus stuff. We've got the tent, we've got the glory, we've got the full of grace and truth little comment about John the Baptist in verse 15. Go to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. He is thinking about that. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's a verse to chew on. No one has ever seen God. You go, Hang on a minute, Moses did. Right, but who did he see? God the Son. When he asked God the Father, show me your glory, the Father said, I can't let you see my face. I'll let you see my goodness, but I'm going to cover you so you cannot see my face because no one can see my face and live. And the Bible is consistent with that. People do not see the Father, but we see the Son. And all through the Old Testament, time after time after time, there are moments where people are encountering God face to face, but the one they're encountering is God on two legs, God in the flesh. They're encountering God the Son, who is revealing the Father always. That's his role. That's what he does. And so Luther would read through his Old Testament and we can read through our Old Testaments. And if we're not careful, we can miss the fact that God is revealing himself all the way through and encountering people in the person of his son walking on two legs. You can read it and you can turn it into a set of instructions and a moral code and some good history and you can miss the person that is all the way through it. But once you get to the New Testament, Jesus makes it really clear. You should have noticed it's me. You should have recognized me. You should know who I am. When he came to Israel, he was not letting them off the hook. They should have known who he was because he was appearing all the way through the Old Testament. Massively important. You can read the Bible and you can learn every detail and you can miss the point. If you turn the Bible into a set of instructions... Or you can read the Bible and all the way through you can encounter God being revealed to us through the person of his son. And that's what it's for. No one has ever seen God. Actually, none of us ever will. It's an interesting thought. Even when we get to heaven, we're not going to be looking at God the Father. God is spirit and we, we can't see him. But what we'll have for all eternity is the son revealing him to us. Isn't that amazing? And he'll never run out of things to show us. He'll never kind of go, well, all right, that's it. You, I've, you've exhausted me. I've got nothing left. That's, that's the father. There you go. Off you, off you trot. 
Jesus will never say that because for all eternity, there's always more to discover and he will continue to reveal him and reveal him and reveal him to us because that's what Jesus does. God the Father is not seen, but he wants us to know his goodness. And that's why he gave us his son. So that as we look at his son, as we're reading through the passages of the Bible and we're looking, we're seeing Jesus, we're getting to see who God is and what God is like. If, if you find the Old Testament a little bit tricky, just jump into one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I'll let you pick. Go through and just watch Jesus. Watch him in action. Listen to what he says. Imagine being there. And you'll find that he reveals God to you. And the ultimate revelation the ultimate point at which we go, wow, what a God, is when Jesus is stripped, naked, humiliated, hanging on a cross. And you think, no, no, surely that's not what God's like. Surely God is glorious and powerful and impressive. And yet actually it's when Jesus is hanging on the cross that he can draw people to the Father most powerfully because that's where we get to see the very heart of God. If you try to imagine what God is like and, and the image you have of God is of a, a stern policeman or an angry headmaster or a kind of a distant, uninvolved father figure, if you've got any view of God that's kind of negative, kind of distant, kind of harsh, it's because you're projecting something up onto the clouds, but it's not the reality of who God is. We will never guess and get God right. We have to look at Jesus. And what do we find when we look at him? We find a God that absolutely blows every circuit in our hearts and in our minds. A God who's full of grace and truth. A God who loves us. A God who loves us so much that he was willing to give his son to die on the cross for us. To win our hearts back from our self-love and our self-captivation and our self-trust. And to say, hey, hey, excuse me, person who's in love with themselves, let me show you a greater love. It's my love for you. And as Jesus hangs on that cross 2,000 years ago, he gives us the ultimate picture of what God is like. And that's the good news. The good news is not God's really angry, but there's a way to get around it. The good news is that God really loves you. That God is astonishingly different than anything we've ever come up with. And as we look to Christ, we can see what God is like. And because of his death, we can be brought into relationship with him. What we were created for, to actually have his father be our father. To be brought into the embrace of the Trinity. This wonderful, perfect love relationship that has existed for all eternity. It reaches out and it brings us in. And that's why here at Trinity, we, we often say that our vision is for all to be transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity, because it's transforming. And it's not that we've got it and other people haven't, it's that we're all in the process of learning afresh, day after day, wow, what a God we have. What an amazing love he shows for us. That's why we come back time and again to the cross and, and, and sort of bow before the cross and just go, wow, Lord. You did that for me. And in doing that for me, Lord Jesus, you showed me what God the Father is like. And I would never have guessed. Literally, never have guessed. And that's what the Bible's doing. 
page after page, revealing Jesus to us so that we can know him and we can know God and we can have life. That's what the Reformation rediscovered. And that's what we want to celebrate, not just this month, but next month and the month after and the month after that. We want to celebrate that forever because there's nothing better than that, who God is and what God has done. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, you've got to deal with the two persons. We can't get around it. It's, it's not just misreading it. It's clear in the text. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The God on the mountain, the God up in heaven can be known because of the God who pitches his tent amongst us. And they have the same name because it's the same God. I know it's a bit confusing, but that's the wonder of it. That Christianity is not offering you just another variation of all the other gods. We're saying, forget all the other gods. This is the true God. A God who is in relationship, Father and Son by the Spirit, loving one another, reaching out to us and proving their love, his love for us by what Jesus did on the cross. What do we do with that applicationally? Let's just have a couple of Luther quotes to finish. Luther said, for some years now, I've read through the Bible twice every year. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of these branches because I wanted to know what it was or what it, and what it meant. Isn't that a nice image? That was his passion. That can be ours too. Just think that the privilege is, is not just once a week to come to church and have things dispensed to us. That's a little bit not very healthy. We get that, but we also get to at home say, oh, let me read something. I'm going to shake that branch. I'm in John 1. I'm going to shake it and see what it means. I'm in 1 Kings 4. I'm going to shake that and see what falls off it. I'm going to see what's there. That was Luther's passion. And that can be ours too. That's a privilege. Not, as I said, to find instructions for life. Not to find a verse that, that kind of speaks into our situation. That's nice when that happens. But instead, every day to get up with a passion to say, Lord, I want to know you. Help me to know you as I read my Bible this morning, chapter three, chapters, 10 chapters, whatever. As I read it, as I look at it, I want to know you more. I'm gonna shake this thing until I discover more of you. One more quote. The New Testament preaching is but an offering and presentation of Christ through the sheer mercy of God to all people. This is done in such a way that all who believe in him will receive God's grace and the Holy Spirit, whereby all sins are forgiven, all laws fulfilled, and they become God's children and are eternally blessed. That's what the New Testament is doing, according to Luther. It's just constantly offering and presenting Christ. That's what we want to do when we preach on Sundays, but that's what we get to do, all of us, when we open our Bibles. Just say, Lord, show me Jesus. Offer and present Jesus to me again because he is what the whole thing is all about. No one has ever seen God, but the Bible presents to us the only God who is at the Father's side who has made him known. I almost, I'm almost tempted to say because of the Reformation, we can know God. But that's not strictly true, is it? 
because of the Reformation, we have discovered again that through the Bible, because of its revelation of Christ to us, we can know God. There's no greater privilege. There's nothing more we can offer than that. We can know God. Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you so, so much for men like Tyndale and Luther and others, many of whom, at the cost of their own life, put your word into our language, into the language of the people. And Lord, we thank you for the Bible, not just because it is a treasure, but because of the treasure it offers us, which is the privilege of knowing you through your Son. So, Father, we pray that as a, as a church, we would be people who are passionately excited to shake every twig on the great tree of Scripture and discover more and more of who you are, what you're like, what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that we would be people transformed as we discover more of the glorious love that can only be found in you. And as we go on to a, a time of communion now, Lord, we pray that this bread and this juice that, that is uh, brought around that some of us will take, Lord, we pray that it will also, like the scriptures, be a, a preaching to our hearts of the wonder of who you are. As we think about your body, Lord Jesus, given for us, your blood shed for us so that we could be brought into the embrace of the Trinity. From the bottom of our hearts, Lord, we say thank you. We look forward to the day when we won't need bread and juice to know uh, that reminder, but we'll just get to look on you, Lord Jesus, and see you face to face. We long for that day, but for now, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you more and more through your word. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.